Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager. Today, I'm recording outside. Uh, if it's a little bit noisy, you'll know why. They're renovating the uh, house above mine, or the flat above mine. So I'm outside, it's a bit strange, um, but I'm thrilled to be here because I'm on the line with Amor Tolls. He's a Boston-born uh, New York writer who has sold more than 4 million copies um, of his books, The Rules of Civility and A Gentleman in Moscow. His new book is called The Lincoln Highway, and I'm really wrapped in it. Amor, thank you so much for your time today. Good to be here, Ben. Thanks so much for having me on Booktopia. Uh, from what I understand, uh, The Lincoln Highway is really quite a different book to what you've written previously. Uh, it's a wild adventure that takes you across America in the 1950s, and it's told from multiple perspectives. Uh, how would you describe this one, you know, particularly for so many fans that you've picked up off the wild success of A Gentleman in Moscow? Um, you're absolutely right about the fact that the, the two books stand in contrast to each other. And, and for me, that's a very natural uh, outcome out, uh, as an artist. Because for those of your listeners who have read A Gentleman in Moscow, they know that that book follows uh, an aristocrat from the age of 30 to 60 who is under house arrest in Moscow. And that book begins, you know, on page one, he walks into the Hotel Metropole in Moscow and he doesn't come out. You know, it's 30 years uh, in the hotel. So as I was deciding what I'm going to do next, and I've been writing fiction my whole life uh, and I have many ideas I'd like to tackle. I think it's very natural that the, all my instincts were to do something different than what I had just spent five years doing. You know, so I wanted to get out of the building. Um, and I also was interested in doing something that wasn't a span of 30 years. And uh, so I had this notion dating back many years ago of a young man, an uh, 18-year-old, who, had, uh, who actually had killed someone by mistake in a, in a fight that he had not started um, and had, was sent to, uh, for a year in uh, a juvenile sort of work camp. And I had this vision of him being driven home the day that he had finished his term to the family farm in the Midwest, Nebraska. And the warden saying, you, you know, this was a freak accident and you're a good person and you've paid your debt to society. Go start your life anew. And it turned out that two of his friends from the juvenile prison, as it were, had hidden in the trunk of the warden's car. That was kind of the idea that I had. And, and, uh, and I always envisioned that this story, if it was told, would be very rapid. It would be over 10 days. And so as I was leaving the realm of the gentleman in Moscow, this aristocratic, you know, uh, trapped in this beautiful hotel in, the, in this troubled, you know, three decades of Russian history, I was suddenly, you know, it's like, I'm going to go do the, the trunk of the car story, you know, because uh, not only because do I get to do with 18 year olds, you know, which is a very different kind of uh, uh, story. Uh, I'll be back in America in a time period that's of interest to me, the 50s, but also it'll be this 10 day period. And that's a big difference in storytelling to shift from 30 years to 10 days. And so I, that that's what makes it exciting for me. So I get to retool all the aspects of my craft. I get to give the reader uh, a, a very different experience. John uh, mm. Moscow will be a fan of Lincoln Highway. I'm confident of that. But while, but at the same time, will be a different experience. Yeah, he's certainly not getting the same thing twice. Uh, tell me about this this period. Like, what would it be like for a young man coming off a farm in Nebraska in this 
in this time frame that's that's disappearing from living memory. You know, it is it is post-war pre-Vietnam America, uh, yeah. where like civil rights and the sexual revolution are, are, are just about to hit. Um, it's it's like the cusp of uh, a new kind of the second half of the 20th century, isn't it? That's exactly it, Ben. So, and that's kind of one of the things that attracts me to it is that it was uh, um, an oasis as a decade in a ter- in, a, in in 50 years of turbulence because you mm. have the, the the depression is the entire 30s, the Second World War is is the first half of the 40s. The Korean War follows very quickly in the United States, and, and the, the GIs are just coming back and getting their lives going at the end of the 40s. And so the 50s, uh, the Korean War ends in 1953. The economy's in good shape. All the GIs have gone back and have been sent to college under the GI Bill and have now are in the workforce. Um, the suburbs are booming. You know, American brands are booming. But it's a period of relative cultural quiet in many ways, as you say, because of all these things that are just under the surface, but about to happen. You know, the ones you mentioned, the, the, the Vietnam War is, is still, it's coming in the, in, the, in the 60s. The sexual revolution kind of is just about to begin because Playboy, the, which I assume your listeners will know what that is, but, you know, Hugh yes, Hefner yes. invents the notion of classy pornography, right? You know, which is that, you know, for, for, for a hundred years, uh, men and some women who wanted to see, you know, nudity would go to an alley and buy it in a paper bag. And suddenly Hugh Hefner was like, enough of that. I'm going to create a magazine with beautiful pictures of beautiful women who are naked. And there's going to be interviews with authors and presidents. And there's going to be articles on, you know, travel in Europe. And you're going to want to put that magazine on the coffee table. That was kind of his idea. And that happened, you know. And uh, so so that's just about to happen. Uh, television in the United States was launched a few years before. But it's over the course of the decade that it really unfolds. And so uh, by the end of the decade, it'll be in 90% of the households in America. Um, so that's sort of beginning. Rock and roll is invented in 1954 in the United States. And so that's about to happen. And the other major one you mentioned is the civil rights movement. And you know, the, uh, for your, your Australian listeners, uh, the, the, uh, the major event in 1954 was something called... Uh, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. It was a Supreme Court decision, which for decades, the South in America had said separate but equal is okay. So meaning you can have white students in one building, black students in another, as long as they're both being taught, that is okay. And the Supreme Court says that is not okay. There's no such thing as separate but equal. And desegregation begins and suddenly, you know, Rosa Parks emerges, Martin Luther King emerges and all that's about to happen like literally within a year of, of 1954. So this moment in time is sort of a great sort of quiet moment where a whole mm. generation is about to uh, come of age just as uh, American culture is going to be turned upside down. And your central character that kind of anchors this story, uh, he's, as you say, he's, he's just done a stint for involuntary manslaughter He's, he's taken a life. It's it's a really serious thing. Um, but equally um, weighing on him is is his, you know, his father has just died and he's, he's kind of known in town, the father, as having been a failure, have, has sort of made a failure of his farm and his land um, and the house is going to be repossessed. And, you know, at, at the very outset of this novel as... This this guy goes around town. This young guy, 
it strikes me as really odd as you know, he has this huge piece of baggage in his really young life. He's, he's taken a life, but that might not be the biggest part of his baggage. You know, the, it's the, you know, his, his mother has, has gone as well. He's, she's, she's kind of just fled. Um, and he's, he's left with his, his brilliant younger brother, Billy, who I'd love you to talk about as well. Uh, but, but tell me about creating that kind of contrast in, in your young character in what is actually like a really light and joyous novel. Yeah. You know, I think the best way for me to talk about it is, uh, you know, without giving I'm not giving anything away. As I mentioned, Emmett, uh, who you're talking about is, is a very honorable young guy. He's made this terrible mistake uh, and he feels the weight of it quite intensely. As you say, his father was a failure and has died. So he also feels the weight of it. it's time to need to take care of his brother now. And so they're gonna have to go figure out where to live and everything. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you have these two guys in the tr- in the car, and they're both 18 too. One is from New York. They're both from New York, but from the opposite ends of, of the cultural spectrum. One is the child of a failed sort of a villain actor slash con man who kind of lived hand to mouth in the city, fast talking New Yorker type. The other one was sort of an aristocrat, you know, or, or descended from the, the aristocratic New York and went to private schools and, you know, has seen has traveled the world a little bit even as a young man. So. You have this triumvirate of these three friends who the story begins with. And I think that, that in retrospect, I, mean, I, don't, I didn't set out to do this, but in retrospect, and of course, this is what happens, is the story is very much about how at the age of 18, we fashion ourselves. You know, if you, yeah. you, know, if you think about our lives and, you know, this is true, you know, throughout the world, you know, you take the kid who's from one years old to 14 years old or whatever, Everybody is is feeding that young person information about how they should live their life. You know, the parents are, the church is, the school is, the community is, the books they read are all meant to sort of help shape that young person and which you sort of just take. But suddenly, like around 18, that it turns around where suddenly it's your job to now do it yourself. And, uh, and you have kind of the, both the right and the responsibility to do it. And to some degree, that's a filtering of a sifting of all this stuff you've been given is what of it are you going to keep and what are you going to toss out as you fashion your own future, you know, and decide who you're going to be, you know, forgetting whatever your parents were. And some kids want to be just like their dad and some kids don't want to be the opposite of their dad. You know, some kids, you know, embrace religion. Some kids are like, I will never go to church again in my life. And so the, but that's when it's happening is at that point in time. So the book, even though it only takes place over 10 days, it is a window on the beginning of these three young men and one young woman who are all in the very first stages of trying to figure out who are they going to be? What do they want from life? Uh, What do they aspire to? Uh, What is their ethos? What are they willing to do? What are they unwilling to do? You know, what is right and wrong? All that has to be sort of fashion just for all of us. You know, we all are figuring that out at that moment. And the decisions we kind of make in that short multi-year period can influence the rest of our lives. Are we a person who's willing to lie? You know, we kind of decide then. And it's, you know, you, you can bet that if you're a liar at 18, you're probably a liar at 55, you know, and, and vice versa, right? If you're a person who's dedicated to honesty as a young person, you're probably going to be dedicated to honesty later. And so, and you may have good reasons for which one of those things you choose. Uh, so, so yeah, so he, Emmett does have weight. Uh, Willie has a different kind of weight. Duchess has a different yeah. kind of weight. 
but they are all in the business of, of about to fashion themselves out of the raw material of, of what's been given them. Tell me about Duchess and, and his, uh, firstly, how, how, he, how he comes to have the name Duchess. And, and uh, he's very strange and peculiar moral compass because it is a very sturdy moral compass, but it, uh, it looks very strange from the outside, doesn't it? Yes, yes. I, you know, you know. So I, I can't remember. Where are you located right now? Where are you? I'm outside in a park in no, Sydney. No, no, what, in Sydney, right? You're in Sydney. So, so I can't remember. You know, does, does Sydney have the equivalent of like the downtown New York? You know, where where where, where troublemakers thrive? You know, I mean, what you know? Where is that in Australia? There must be that spot where the you have the urban fast talkers and the con men and the you know you know the charmers and the big dreamers and, you know, where is that in, in Australia? Yeah. Oh, there, there's, there's a lot of old neighborhoods, but again, like both, both Sydney and Melbourne, the two really big cities are, are changing very quickly and sort of suburban sprawl is happening very quickly and uh, gentrification is happening very quickly as, as it is, I'm sure in your places like LA and New York. Uh, so, so it's a, it's a, it's a rapidly changing thing that, you know, uh, areas like, Surrey Hills used to be uh, the haunt of gangsters and such, but uh, yeah, right. then, and yeah, that's that's right downtown near Central Station in Sydney. Yeah. But that, right now, that's that's upmarket cafes and hairdressers, and okay. <laughs> you know what I mean. My point being, that's where Duchess came from, right? Before right. the gentrification, right? Where because because you know New York City in uh, um, a sort of an extreme version of what of what Sydney has been through, you know, uh, or, or, or it, a, a part of city's development is, you know, New York City took people in from around the world in the 1880s, mm. the 1890s, 1900s. So by the time you get to 19, the, the Second World War, half of the population are people who've, you know, come from somewhere else and, or, you know, or, or the children from some who came to come from somewhere else. And, and it's a rough and tumble environment, you know, and uh, so, you know, people, you know, hustle exists. It's, it's, it's built into the lower New York City mindset, you know, as uh, wherever you're from, you're trying to survive and, um, and within kind of roughly within the bounds of the law, you know, and some people like the mob, you know, just saved the hell with the law, but, but everybody else is trying to get by, by, you know, making something cheaper, selling something faster, you know, being charming if it's necessary, whatever. And so Duchess is raised out of that environment. And, and as you say that there is a moral compass to Duchess as there is to anybody who kind of grows up in those environments, but the, it is a different moral compass than the kid in the suburbs, you know, who goes to church on Sunday and whose you know, dad is the coach of the baseball team, right? The moral compass there is more nuanced as it were. Um, and it may be, uh, you know, a little bit more, well, if that guy took, you know, money from me, then, you know, it's totally reasonable for me to take the money back from him, you know, in a different way. And, you know, and I am, you know, it's within my rights to do it. And that's the appropriate thing in the, in the grand scheme of things to have, you know, that score settled, you know, and that's the kind of guy mm -hmm. Duchess is, which is that, is that he believes in, in that a score should be settled. And so when he does something wrong, he thinks he owes the other person some kind of uh, retribution, you know, uh, so, so that to, to, or that I mean that he, he has to pay them in some way to settle the score. But if somebody wrongs him, he feels it is completely moral for him to exact some kind of punishment from them, whether or whatever that's financial or physical, you name it. And so that's a moral code in there, but it is the moral code of the tough neighborhood, you know, as opposed to the moral code of uh, gentrification. 
Yeah, and it uh, very interesting happen. Interesting things will happen to a, a young man who who go out of his way to take a punch <laughs> when he feels he needs to. That's right. That's right. That's part uh, of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everywhere I've been, I've been savoring this novel for a good number of days now. Um, it's it's been a wonderful kind of bedtime story novel, and I I read passages aloud to my partner as she nods off to sleep at night. That's been a really rich experience. And I think it's because this, this story of adventure is, is layered together with so many different kind of vignettes or, or delightful detours from what you think is going to be the core action of the novel. You know, a, a favourite that comes to mind is, is, the, is the story of a, a guy called Townhouse uh, who is a former inmate from Harlem who, who Duchess you know, pays a visit to. Uh, do you, did you plan all these kind of detours into your writing or, or did they just kind of blossom out of creating this thing? I, I am an, uh, an outliner. So right. and a planner. So for me, typically I have an idea for a book. It interests me. I'll start to think about it and dwell on it and imagine it in greater and greater detail. I have notebooks, you know, dedicated to individual ideas that will accumulate over time a, a more detailed picture of that book before I ever sit down to write it. And, and that's a multi-year process for me. I call it the design phase. And so by the time I finish, sit down to write a chapter one, I usually know 90% of what's going to happen in the book, um, at least to some degree. Now, along the way, in the writing process, new things will present themselves. So, you know, I, you know, one of the sort of side stories, uh, which I really, it was one of the first things I thought of, I don't even know why, in, in one of the side stories in the book is, a, is about a guy named Fitzy. You may not have reached that yet, but where, where, where the, the notion is this, Fitzy is back in like the 40s and Fitzy is a, is a, is a you know, low level vaudevillian actor and he loves Walt Whitman, the American poet who had a big white beard. So he grows a big white beard and he convinces people to put him on stage for, you know, an anniversary of Whitman's birth or whatever. And it's a big phenomenon. And, and he's, you know, reads Whitman's poetry and, you know, but dressed like Whitman, looking like Whitman. And everybody wants him. Make, he gets rich. He starts to get rich off of this. And, uh, you know, I've met a guy who's been down and out. And at one of these events, a society woman says, hey, with your white beard, you'd be perfect for Santa Claus. Would you be Santa at my fancy uptown party? And so he goes and he, and he does that. And he gets even more rich from that because over the course of the winter, December, all the richest families in New York want this guy to be their Santa Claus. And he's doing three gigs a night. And he's a thousand dollars a night at Christmas time. And that's so he works in December and no, that doesn't have to work any time of the year. He's getting richer and richer. And at one of these Christmas parties, a young woman says, hey, I'm a part of the Greenwich Village you know, Labor Society. And we would love to have you come and speak uh, at, on the May Day uh, gathering, because with your beard, you look just like Karl Marx. Karl Marx. And so he does. <laughs> he goes, and it's a disaster because the police raid the joint, and his photograph is in the newspaper. And so his life of being a Santa is over now that he's known as a, com a commie provocateur. So I know. So like this story, which is like three pages in the book, you know, and it's and the guy's not even in the book, you know, but it's a part of the world of that Duchess has come from. It's an old friend of his father's who's now a drunk, mm -hmm. and. Uh, where did that come from? You know, that's the kind of thing, like I was wandering around one day and I think I thought about Whitman and, and Santa looking similar. And then I was like, so does Karl Marx. And, and I was like, what if a guy, you know, and then you sort of imagine this story. 
And then I was like, you know what? This is perfect because this would be the guy who'd be a friend of Duchess's father. So it gets tucked into the outline of this thing. The story you're talking about, which is Townhouse, how Townhouse gets in trouble. That I did not have in my mind until I got there. I kind of knew that Townhouse did something that, you know, obviously he did something to get him sent to this facility. And I kind of knew the kind of guy he was, that he would, he and Emmett would get along. And they, even though from a different race, a different part of the country, that they would, they would be similar of like, like mind. But I didn't know what he had done. And I kind of got to that point where I was writing it. And then you have to sort of, it kind of, hopefully it comes to you, you know what I mean? Without much fretting, you know, of, oh, right. You know, what he's going to do is what's going to have happened to him is, and then you get this story that this, I had this notion of these guys, these young guys who work for their father taking dents out of cars and they close the, the body shop on Saturday for their father. And they realize, well, shit, the cars work. And dad's at home, we could rent these cars out, the client's cars for, you know, 10 bucks an hour to our friends who want to go on dates. And so they kind of launched this secret business and young townhouse, you know, 16, 17, he bought, he rents, you know, fancy Cadillac in Harlem, takes a girl out and gets caught and, you know, doesn't want to turn into his friends. So he ends up getting, you know, busted for grand theft auto of all things, you know, as a, as a minor. Um, But yeah, so, so that, that kind of came out as I was literally writing the chapters, sort of this notion. So, so some of those things are built in very tight into the story, and some of them kind of flourish out. Um, I knew, as, you know, as, if you get farther in the at the end story, the two guys who fix cars, I, they were already in the story because it becomes critical to have them because Emmett, the hero, has a car and they need to do some work on that car. So they were already in the story. So then it made very a nice sense to kind of bring their job into the townhouse story and, and have the two things merge. That's sort of the way it works for me. Yeah. I, I, it, there's, there's, so, <laughs> there's, there's so much joy to find. You're just in a, a few short pages of this book. And I can only imagine was, was there, were there a lot of these glorious little gem stories that you had to leave behind to make, to make the final book work. And does that pain you as a writer? Uh, you know, I, I'm always willing to take something out. You know, you, it is a game of balance and you're trying to, uh, you know, as you know, one aspect of the story is like Fitzy, who's this old friend of Duchess's father, this, you know, in this low rundown performing group of, you know, people performers who are kind of losers and drunks and gamblers. There were multiple stories from Duchess's world. So you can get a sense of what he was raised in. And, and, but I had more of those than I could use, you know, I mean, as you say, mm. so at a certain point, you're like, there's two, there's two, you can feel it. There's one too many, or there's two too many, you know? And so you have to pull out this, you know, I love this anecdote about this guy or this magician or whatever he is. And, you know, this sleight of hand artist and, uh, and, you know, you deciding, I had this whole thing written which I'm going to give to you, Ben, this is for you. So you can have this. Yes. So the, the notion was his father was going to run a scam, a scam where he, he plays, he's a mentalist, you know, where you, you go to a theater and you look out at the audience and you, you predict, or you, you have insights into the individual people in the audience. And his scam is that he's sleeping with the girl who runs the coat room at the fancy restaurant across the street from the theater. And so, you know, everybody comes to the, that restaurant 
before the show. And so he has her going through the jackets of all the people that are, you know, at the restaurant. So he's got all this information when the show begins, you know, and, but eventually he get they get busted. Like, I don't know. So anyway, so I was like, you know, so you have that kind of thing that gets pulled out eventually. Cause you're like, you know, I, I have, I have too, too many of these kinds of things in the book. Cause it is, I say, it's this sort of, you have to have a feel for when am I overdoing this? When, you know, when do I have, when is I underdoing it? And you have to kind of try to hit that moment of equilibrium. And yes, sometimes that means you, you love this little bit, but out it goes, you know. You'll have to um, do a deleted scenes. <laughs> yeah, right, right. The extended DVD, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, there's more characters we we haven't even touched on in, in what we've chatted about thus far. Um, you know, one of the few women in the story is is Sally, and she is <laughs> she is the unlikely source of so much of the comedy in this book. Yeah, uh, who's Sally, and, and what makes her tick? So, uh, and, and as sort of as a quick background for your listeners, um, this book. When I originally envisioned, it's a 10-day story, as I said. And when I originally envisioned it, it was going to be told from two perspectives. You'd hear Emmett's perspective and Duchess's perspective, the two characters we've talked about. Uh, every day, you'd kind of get their version of events or back-to-back or whatever, and, and the story would move forward that way. Now, when I got deep into the book, there were two, there's a uh, sequence on a train where two guys show up on this train where the young Billy is, is alone in a box car and a guy named Pastor John and a character named Ulysses who's an African-American veteran. And, and I, I, I could hear these two characters so strongly that I wrote the sequence of Pastor John's arrival from his perspective. And then I wrote the Ulysses's pers- arrival from his perspective. And suddenly it's like the, you know, the, the cat out of the bag. It's like or- gates are open. Yeah. Oh my God. So then I was like, well, wait, if I'm, if, if I'm not going to do just Emmett and Duchess back and forth, I'm going to include these guys. Then what about Sally? That was the first thing I said to myself because she appears early in the book and even through interaction, Emmett talking to her or Duchess talking to her, you, you can, I know who she is and her personality is so strong and she's kind of hilarious in, in her, in her way. And so I was like, we got, I want to hear, I want to have Sally have her own chapter. So I went back and added Sally chapters. And then she, you know, has chapters throughout the book. Same thing with Wooly. I knew Wooly, who's the third guy from the, from the, uh, from the juveniles camp. I knew him. He's this beautiful sort of soul. And I knew what he was thinking and how he was sounding, but you didn't really come across in the way that the other characters who talked to him, you didn't really know who he was. And so again, I wanted to hear from him so the reader would know who he was as deeply as I did. So suddenly I was going back and adding his chapters. Now in the end, the book is told from eight perspectives. And at this point, I cannot imagine it being told from less. You know, the, the idea that it was just the two guys, would, it would have been a, a much weaker book. But Sally was, was the, so as I say, was a great breakthrough for me. I mean, in terms of feeling, she's the, she's the chapters that were the easiest to, for me to write. And uh because uh, I can hear her so strongly. My dad was raised in the Midwest and my grandmother was raised in the Midwest. And my grandmother was like, you know, canned her own fruit and, you know, cooked her own pies and was no nonsense. You know, I'm sure there's the equivalent in the, uh, Australia and America have so many overlapping cultural realities, you know, uh, you know, because we're both large nations with lots of resources, lots of land. We're both nations that we're sort of aside from the, we both have indigenous populations that were not treated very well. And we both have, you know, everybody else came there from scratch and built themselves. And so 
we and I, and I think we also share a certain personality. Uh, and uh, you know, I, always when you travel, I can tell when I'm you know an Australian in you know in seconds, you know, and, and or you know, and I, and I feel I hope they can tell the American too because we're a little friendlier maybe than the French or the you know the British aristocrats or you know I don't know I just think that we are so, but but so. And, and you must have the equivalent of Sally's, which is these sort of very practical, you know, people living in the, in, you know, farms, uh, tough lives, um, but at the same time, lots of, uh, of vigor and, you know, uh, lots of opinion, um, you know, and in her case, she's very devoted to the church, you know, but she's also as tough as nails, you know, <laughs> so wouldn't let the church push her around, you know, and, you know, uh, keeps house for her father, but has no patience with him and, and, but she has, her wisdom is what makes her so much fun. Sort of the, the way that she cuts, she looks at, at things and, and dissects people is, is uh, has, it's just has great character to it. So she was, she was a real pleasure to write. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll mention this, having gone to this weird speech about Australia and America, I read books with three friends and we've been reading together uh, for 16 years. And we read by projects. So we'll take a, you know, a, a major author from any, somewhere in the world, doesn't have to be American, and we might read seven books by them in a row over the course of seven months. And we meet once a month over dinner and late into the night to talk about a novel every month. Sometimes it's themes. We, you know, we'll take a, a series of five novels that are tied together by a theme or a moment in time, and we'll read those in sequence. But usually, you know, our goal is to read high literature and talk about high literature. Our current project, which we launched last night, is we are reading uh, five works of Patrick White. And, and so we read, we started with The Tree of Man. And last night was our first meeting to discuss Patrick White, where we discussed The Tree of Man at, you know, over a period of three or four hours, and uh, which was great fun. And by the way, like having said that I know there's a Sally in Australia, you know, the, the, the mother in, uh, or, or the, the setup in The Tree of Life, is similar to the Midwestern lifestyle. You know, these people who lived in, you know, relatively empty land where they, it was, you know, the, the weather was right on them. You know, the floods came, the fires came, they got up at dawn to milk the cows. You know, the men and women were silent for hours at a time, but were wise and, you know, and, and flinty, you know, they couldn't, you know, they were not, you know, they weren't generous with their emotions. You know, they were generous of, of heart, but also had to be serious at all times, you know, and, and that's the, 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 the family, the, the husband and wife at the center of Tree of Man. And I recognize them. And, and yes, there's some of that in, in both Emmett and Sally, because we I think we have a very similar kind of uh, type of person who out in the Midwest who 100 years ago helped you know, clear that land for the first time, you know, under tough circumstances and built those towns and you know, lived in solitude for, you know, the entire winter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But boy, I, I, we love the tree of man. We cannot wait. We're doing Voss next. Uh, his, the book that came right after tree of man. We can't, we can't wait. Yeah. So you, you, I'm, I'm glad you're reading them. And you're definitely right about there being Sally's in Australia. I think there might be one or two in my workplace even. <laughs> uh, right. And this um, uh, kind of, Tails neatly into another thing I wanted to ask, which is, what do you look for in reading a novel as 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 something to bring joy? And because yeah, this this book is bringing so much joy to my life. As you're talking about now, as a reader, or I mean, yeah, when as a I'm, reader, when I'm a writer reading another book, um, 
I do, uh, I, you know, I, I appreciate the question. I, it is, writing is a craft. And so, uh, you know, and I've been doing it since I was in first grade. And, uh, but, you know, when, when, you, when a young writer says to me, what advice do you have? My advice is always read, write, repeat, because that's it. You know, you got to read something, you got to write something, and then go back to the, do it again. And, and you'll find someone you admire or you're impressed by or you're interested in, in as a reader, as a reader, read their work carefully and then go write something. And some, you could copy them as an example. That's a way of, you know, there's nothing wrong in practice with copying or, uh, you know, working off of a template of another artist because it's the way that you master yourself. All the great painters, whether the 19th century painters, the 20th century painters, whether it's Picasso or Matisse in the 19th, 20th century or, you know, Manet in the 19th century, they all were duplicating masters in their youth. You know, they would stand in the Louvre or wherever and or in the Tate and and they would go and stand in front of a Rembrandt or a, a, a Renaissance painting and they would copy it inch for inch. Right. And that's the way you master craft is you see you, you try to figure out how did he do that? How did she do that? And so, you know, as a young writer, there's nothing wrong with doing that, going back and forth from reading to writing. And and so, yes, when I'm reading, even now, the how did he or she do that is always, you know, the, there's the impression the book gives me. And then a second later is that question. And so, you know, uh, you go through a sequence of great momentum in a book and you're like, wow, that was awesome. You know, it was thrilling, you know, 40 pages went by like that. How did that, what happened there? How did they do that? Or you're, 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 you find yourself laughing or weeping or, or amazed, or you know, perplexed. Whatever it is that you're going through, that's in a, in, a, in a book that is well done by a talented writer. That is a part of of what's intended at some level, whether unconsciously or unconsciously by the artist. But it's so it merits sort of looking into it. And so, like last night, we talked a lot about how is Patrick White doing this. And I, you know, I don't know how whether how well he's read in Australia today. But as an example, this book, uh, The Tree of Man spans in the marriage, a marriage from its beginning to the very end. I'm not giving anything really away there because as soon as you're 100 pages in it, you can tell it's going to be the life of this couple from beginning to end. And um, so, and you know, that's not to be surprised. What's interesting is that you can go through 30 pages that describe a morning, and then you go through three pages, which describe 13 years. And it's very fluid. And he does it without you even noticing. And the, and, and, the, and the year of the time is never mentioned in the book once, but you kind of know where you are roughly by, because you start with wagons and then there's a, a car, the first car arrives. And then, you know, he, the, the farmer has a rundown car and then the daughter has a fancy car and you're kind of tracking the, the evolution of the 20th century through the, through the, what, how they're driving, you know, how they're getting from place to place without, as I say, without it ever saying 1910 or 1920 or the, the date is never mentioned in the entire novel, which spans, you know, whatever it is, 50 years or something. And so how, you know, that's, I say, how, that's a fascinating thing to look at how he seamlessly shifts, not only how he strings it together, but also how he's constantly shifting the pace of the time, how it's unfolding. And as one of my friends put it last night, it's like being in a river where, you know, the river narrows and you speed up and then the river widens and you slow down, you know, and then it happens again and, you know, it narrows and you speed up and that's what happens in a river, right? Because the same amount of water is flowing through 
the river at any square inch along the length of the river. And the narrower it is, the faster it has to go. So anyway, the book feels like that, where the pace is changing in this seamless fashion. So as I said, we, I read with a pen, I ask myself questions, I try to understand how the book is working structurally, linguistically, the sentiments, the ideas, the imagery, you know, I'm, I am pulling that apart like it's an autopsy, you know, I guess, you know. I, I love that. And I, and I love the analogy of the, the young master artist, uh, uh, you know, in, in tutelage from, from the, from the previous great painter. If, if, uh, if, if you were a young Matisse, uh, looking on a Paul Cezanne or whatever it is, uh, what, what were the books that inspired you as a young man? Uh, I, you know, and I, I'm 56. So, and I've been reading closely for, you know, there for almost, you know, about 40 years, really. Um, so I have, you know, what's behind me is a teeny portion of my, of my library, you know, which is around mm. here and in other rooms, you know, enough to drive a spouse crazy. Right. So, but, but, but uh, you know, so I, I love uh, I've loved at different phases of my life, I've delved into different areas of literature and, and, and read them quite closely. Um, I, you know, probably my three favorite novels are uh, Moby Dick by Herman Melville, the great American masterpiece, Hundred uh, Years of Solitude by Marquez, um, and uh, War and Peace by Tolstoy. Now, I mean, what those three things have in common, those three novels, is they all are big, spanning works. Huge. Yeah, and so they, so obviously, I mean, part of the reason I, they are my favorite is because they do it all somehow, you know, that they, they cover, it's a, they're enormous periods of time and, or, you know, not that uh, you, you feel like a lot of time goes by in, in Moby Dick. That's a relatively short term, you know, hundred years out is exactly a hundred years, you know, war and peace is, is decades. And, but uh, you know, but uh, you're, you're in the case of Moby Dick is you're covering ground and, you know, but our, our water, um, but the, but more than that, in each of those cases, the artist is bringing to bear so many different inventive ways to pursue storytelling within a single, very cohesive reading experience that, you know, that's what's just so impressive. You know, the people feel alive. The language is great poetry in each case. Uh, you know, history is being discussed and analyzed. Ideas are being shared. There's humor and pathos. You know, they really do do it all you know uh so so you know but you know as i say i love many 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 writers and many books um but those would definitely be benchmarks hey well thank you very much for sharing your time and, and being so generous with me uh one final question what will you do next something different <laughs> <laughs> well said i you know i uh i am well I do design for years. So whenever I'm about to start my new book, it's something that actually I've been working on for, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight years. So what I'm doing next, I won't start writing chapter one probably for nine months, but it's something I've been thinking about for years. I've got notebooks on and it will be very different than uh, the three books I've written so far. Ah, oh, well, we lie in wait. Amos Tolls, thank you for being on the Booktopia podcast. Thank you. I wish I was there in person, but but thanks very much for your, for for listening. The Lincoln Highway is published by Random House, and you can get it right now from booktopia.com.au.
Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.